You're listening to the Victory Church Podcast. Here at Victory, we are called to equip a caring, committed community of worshipers to reach their world for Jesus. We hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Welcome. We're excited to continue our series, Invite Your Neighbor, Change the World. And I really do believe that as we follow through on the principles of this study, which is going along with the book, Invite Your Neighbor, Change the World, that we will do just that. We will change the world. Maybe not the whole world, but as we participate, we'll change our world, the part of the world that God has given to us as our area of responsibility to do all that we can to glorify Him and to bless other people. And there are people in our lives who need to be blessed, who need to come into a relationship with Jesus, but they don't know it yet. And this culminates, for those who are able to be a part of it, on October 23rd with a day of service. We're calling it Day of Hope, and we have about 20 other churches doing that day of service with us 40-something projects, so it's going to be a big day. But if you're participating in this service online, I want to invite you. You can do your own service project, just you and somebody that you invite to go along with you to do some act of service in your community if you live in a different part of the world. So this will help you. This will change things. And what we're basing things on is Matthew 5, 16, where Jesus said in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and then the result and glorify your father in heaven. And we're recognizing that a lot of those neighbors, the people in our everyday lives, people whose lives intersect ours, maybe they're not close friends, but people we see in a coffee shop perhaps or somewhere that we regularly do business, that a lot of those people are not yet ready to worship with us. And I truly believe inviting people to worship with us is a great means of evangelism, but not everybody is ready to worship with us but a lot more people will be ready to serve with us. And when they see us serving, when they see us doing good deeds, then what Jesus said will happen. They'll see the light of Jesus in your life, in our lives, and they'll be that much closer to glorifying our Father in heaven. So I talk about the different possibilities for our neighbors, our everyday neighbors whom we're inviting do we really know our neighbors? I know sometimes we get a little bit nervous. We think about inviting somebody in the neighborhood in which we live, and uh, probably it's true that most Americans nowadays don't know their neighbors in their own neighborhoods like might have been the case many years ago. So we could get nervous about that. And uh, today I want to talk about just knowing your neighbors. Again, might be somebody in your actual neighborhood where you live, or just somebody whose lives intersects with your life. So uh, do we know our neighbors? Do we know them? And I want to say, I know some things about your neighbor. I know some things about your neighbor. I know I am aware of some things about your neighbor, even if I don't know who your neighbor is. Today, I want to talk to you about five things that we should know about our neighbors. And I'm just going to go through this. This is kind of a topical sermon that introduces you to your neighbor. All right? Number one, they are more ready to hear about Jesus 
than you think. They are more ready to respond to an invitation. They're more ready for something spiritual even than you think. I used to do uh, an exercise routine on DVD. Should be doing it more often, but I used to do it very regularly. And at the end of the exercise session, they would have this promotion for some other exercise videos. And in it, they had a couple of fitness models who were really in shape. I mean, physically, they were in tip-top shape. And, you know, it was designed to make you want to be like them physically. And the tagline for the promo was this, you are closer than you think. Hey, I'm closer than you think. (laughs) But, uh, you know, that's true spiritually too. Not only are you closer than you think, but your everyday neighbor is closer than you think. They're closer to the Lord. They're more ready for the Lord than you think. How do I know that about your neighbor? Because Jesus said it in John 4, 35. He says, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? In other words, we have sayings that cause us to want to delay the harvest, speaking of people coming to Jesus. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Open your eyes. Let God open your eyes. Open your spiritual eyes, and you will see that people all around you, maybe not every single neighbor, but there are people all around you, I guarantee you, who are more ready. Now, they might not quite be ready to hear your long testimony about what Jesus has done for you. That's why you need to keep it brief sometimes. They might not be quite ready to pray with you. They might not be quite ready to pray to receive Christ. They may not be quite ready to worship with you yet, but they still may be closer to an experience with God than you've imagined. Closer to an experience that will transform their lives. And I do believe that on a day of service, when they can see the light of God shining through our good deeds, it could set them up for a life-transforming experience. They are closer than you think. In, in my case, when I was a junior in college, after three years in the Army, coming back, and this young lady, a classmate, prayed for me, that prayer was, for me, an eye-opening experience. My life was so radically transformed. Within three months, you wouldn't have been able to even see that I was the same person. And my, my transition was so rapid, so quick, and just almost instantaneous that the person who prayed for me thought that I must have always been that way. It was not till years later that I let her know that that prayer transformed my life. She had no clue. In fact, I I believe this could be the case. If she knew how involved I was in the abuse of alcohol and taking drugs, she probably would have thought, huh, this little prayer is not going to work for him. (laughs) And she might not have prayed for me. But I believe that I just needed one little nudge. One little nudge changed my life. And it could be that this day of service is the one little nudge that will transform your neighbor's life. 
they are more ready to hear. They're more ready spiritually than we think. Number two, they are made in God's image. They're made, and doesn't matter who they are, doesn't matter their background, doesn't matter how bad they are, doesn't matter how you know, materialistic they are, doesn't matter their attitudes, they are made in the image of God. And one of the things we recognize about that is that makes them infinitely valuable. They're infinitely valuable to God, and they ought to be infinitely valuable to us. But that's not really what I want to hit on right now. The, the fact that they're made in the image of God also means this. They have an innate capacity to do good. They have a God-given capacity to do good because something of the image of a good God remains in them. It, yes, sin has messed up that image, and that's why we need salvation. But the image has not been obliterated and any individual you meet, it's still there. So they're not only infinitely valuable, they have great capacity to do good. It's God-given. It's in them. The Apostle Paul recognizes that, and he talks about the Gentiles. And he's not just talking about non-Jewish people. He's talking about people who don't have a relationship with God, who are not in covenant with God. And he says in Romans 2.15, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, yeah, we know about that, and at other times even defending them. They have God's law, uh, an innate capacity to know God and follow God and serve God and to obey God, to do good. It's in them. And specifically in relation to doing good, Ecclesiastes written a long time before the Apostle Paul, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, tell us this. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Every human heart is shaped to hold eternity. God has put eternity. That's something of his realm, something of God's nature in every human heart. Yet, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And then he says, I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. And that's a general observation of life, of humanity. God has put eternity in our hearts along with life, even design for us to enjoy more fully when we do good. And just like God causes it to rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, he provides crops, he provides food, he provides just a beautiful life for people, even those who do not yet know him, God has provided each individual a capacity to really enjoy life when they do good. This is, you can probably think of a lot of unbelievers, a lot of people who maybe have no room for God in their lives, but who are good people. And sometimes it can be a little deceiving because it can make us think they don't need God, but they're just operating out of something God put within them. I think about my, my own brother, and he went through a period in life where he was very involved in drugs, producing drugs, selling drugs, trafficking drugs. And uh, my brother was a tough guy, 
And my brother, according to what he told me, he had the capacity to hurt some people if they crossed him. And thank goodness for statute of limitations, I guess. Just kidding. <laughs> but my brother, if you crossed him, he, 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 could, he could be a bad dude. Yet I saw where my brother exhibited deep compassion and care for a next-door neighbor, an old gentleman who was dying and had nobody in his life to care for him at all. My brother stepped in. Tremendous compassion. Where did that come from? God put it in him. God put that in him. And God's put something of that in every one of your neighbors. So number one, they're more ready than you think. Number two, they have been made in God's image, and they have a capacity to do great good. Number three is they have needs. They have needs. And, you know, a lot of us live in nice suburbs or we work in great jobs where everybody around us seems to have everything going for them. And they seem not to have any needs. But they have spiritual needs. They have emotional needs. They have a need for real meaning in life. We once hosted a team of college students who were sent here to do outreach in the region. And some teams went to Norristown. Some teams went to inner city Philadelphia. So our team, the team assigned to our church, was very disappointed because, you know, they wanted to be doing inner city ministry. They wanted to be doing urban ministry. In their minds, when they signed up for that mission for that week, they thought they were going to be ministering to, you know, drug addicts and prostitutes, and instead they're out here in the suburbs with suburban pharmaceutical workers and soccer moms. They, they were disappointed. And I even heard one of the students say something like this, these people don't need Jesus, they're rich. Oh my goodness, that couldn't be farther from the truth. It doesn't matter, rich or poor. We as human beings, we're broken. As much as the image of God still exists, we're broken and we need God. We need Jesus. And if your neighbor doesn't have material needs, they have fulfillment needs, they have spiritual needs, and we're greatly mistaken when we think that only people who are materially needy need Jesus. Secular psychotherapists have recognized the uh, importance of fulfillment and, and not just self-actualization as in, you know, the hierarchy of needs, Maslow's, but people need a fulfillment that involves doing something beyond themselves, beyond self-actualization. And people in our culture used to find fulfillment in being American, they, they found fulfillment in being a part of a community with shared values. They found fulfillment in perhaps a religious affiliation. They found fulfillment in, in family. And you know what? In our society today, every single one of those is under attack. I mean, our foundation has been shaken. And we as believers, especially if we're of a more conservative bent, either politically or even theologically, we, we can sometimes feel that, man, we need to stand up for those things that used to provide so much meaning. We need to stand up for religion and country and traditional family and all those traditional values. But I think that 
if, if that's our primary approach, we're going to be fighting a losing battle, that the end result is going to be disappointing for us. Because when we're talking about our neighbors and their needs and our being a channel to, to bless them and help them to know God's love and help them to know God's plan for their lives, that if it's just a matter of arguing and defending what used to provide good sense of fulfillment, we're going to lose that argument. Because right now, there's enough arguing. Our neighbors don't need our arguments. But I can tell you two things that they do need. One is our neighbors need an experience with God. They might not know it yet, but our neighbors need an experience with God. And that, as believers, that ought to be more of a concern for us than defending a traditional value or a traditional institution of some sort. Our neighbors need an experience with God, and they don't just need religion. They don't need religion. They don't just need to be convinced of the importance of religious freedom. I believe that we as Americans right now need to be vigilant with regard to religious freedom. But let's not get confused and think that what our neighbors need is to understand our argument in defense of religious freedom. They need an experience with God. They need the freedom that comes from knowing God. That's what they need, that experience. And number two, especially in such an individualistic and self-centered society, they need an experience that takes them beyond just serving self. They really do. They don't know it yet. Maybe they do. Maybe they're closer than I think in that regard. But with Invite Your Neighbor, Change the World, we're offering both things. An opportunity to experience God. Why? When they see the light of God in our good deeds. And we're offering them an opportunity to step into the possibility that their life could be about something more than just serving self. We're offering them an opportunity to serve beyond themselves. So our neighbors are more ready than we think. Our neighbors are made in God's image and therefore capable of doing great good. But our neighbors have needs. But another thing about our neighbors, number four, is God has a call on their lives. I know it. God has a call on their lives. God has a plan for their lives. And I believe that many people are going to be drawn to God through Invite Your Neighbor, Change the World because they begin to become aware of God's call on their lives. That there is a God whom they can experience and who has a plan for them. That, that's my personal testimony. When I talked about the young lady that prayed for me, uh, you know, she prayed these words that really transformed my life. I was embarrassed for her to pray for me, I have to admit. You know, I was a college student and, uh, you know, just was not really thinking about God. And even though I had engaged in a little bit of a religious com- conversation with this classmate, and uh, had talked about my previous years before age 15 in church, uh, I, I didn't want to pray, but I didn't want to say no. And she prayed this prayer that included several things. I don't know all that she said. I just know these words. God, use him as you've called him to be used. And when she said that, it was like a lightning bolt. It was as though scales fell from my eyes, all of a sudden, I just had this knowing, 
God had a call on my life. And I knew as a result of that, there were some things that I needed to set aside, but that wasn't the emphasis. The emphasis that I heard was that God had something for me to do. God had a call on my life. God had a plan. And later on, I heard a teaching about how sometimes we think that what people really need is to be aware of how broken they are and how sinful they are. And if we can just make them feel badly enough, maybe they'll come to Jesus. But that's not what Jesus did with his own disciples. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, we have the account where it says, And he said to them, that is to Peter and Andrew, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. I will make you fishers of people. I'm going to do something in you and make you where you're not just catching fish anymore. You are going to be having an impact on other people's lives. And because of that invitation, they left behind their old life and began to follow Jesus. That's what happened to me. Because of an invitation to follow a call of God, I left behind the things that I needed to leave behind. It was the prospect of a higher call that was so attractive to me. And I know that God has a higher call on your friends and family and neighbors, those that you're going to be inviting to serve with you. God has a call on their lives. And the more we're aware of that, I think the more effective we'll be at inviting them to participate in something where they can begin to get a taste for God's call on their lives. Invite them to serve because God has something for them to do. Number five, many of your everyday neighbors are weary. They are just tired. I mean, we see it in depression rates and in so many other measures that are negative, that indicate self-destructive behavior. People are weary and they are burdened. People are weighed down. And the truth is, when people are in a condition where they know they have a need like that, they're more likely to say yes to God, more likely to say yes to Jesus, more likely to say yes to your invitation to serve with them, hopefully more likely to say yes to your invitation to worship with them at some point. People are worry, weary and burdened. I mean, think about it, covid I mean, aren't you just tired of COVID and all the things associated with it? Whether you're pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine or pro-mask or anti-mask, I'm just tired of it. And I know a lot of people are. We're tired of work. People are more disgruntled in their jobs than ever before. It's a national phenomenon right now. People are just tired of expectations, tired of head trash, as we call it, just tired of of meaningless pursuit of success as the world defines success, tired of dead religion, tired of it, tired of racism. People are are even tired of fighting racism. I mean, people are tired of fighting for social justice. There is an activism fatigue right now. I even read an article this week where uh, social justice is, you know, under the threat of just caving in because of just fatigue. People are tired, and it doesn't matter what your political bent is or what your status in life. People right now in America are tired. We're weary. We're burdened. Our society is sick in that regard right now. And, you know, even people who months ago might not have felt 
any kind of need along those lines are feeling it. But Jesus has a word for them. I have a word for them. I have a word for you, in fact. It's a word for me. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. We talk about the great commandments and the great commission. This is the great invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, last week, I mentioned that we don't need to know about pre-industrial farm implements. I was wrong. You do. You need to know about a yoke <laughs> because Jesus talks about a yoke. That's a pre-industrial farm instrument. It's a wooden crossbeam that would be fit around the necks of usually two oxen, and then you could attach a plow to the yoke, and that way the oxen could pull the plow. And in the Bible, it's very often used figuratively, more often than not, of negative things like the, the teaching of the Pharisees, you know, who just put religious burdens on the people. That's in the general context of, of what we're talking about in Matthew chapter 11 here. And it's often used to, to designate like political slavery or any kind of burden along those lines. And G Jesus was particularly concerned with the burdens, the yoke that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were placing upon people. People were weary and burdened by those religious yokes. And so a yoke is not generally something good. A yoke is not generally a positive thing, yet Jesus says, come to me, I'll give you rest, I'll give you my yoke, it's easy. What does that tell us? It tells us you don't find rest by throwing off every yoke. You find rest by taking the right yoke. Your neighbor doesn't find rest, whatever their political stripe, whether left or right, we don't find rest. They don't find rest by throwing off every yoke. They find rest by taking on the right yoke by taking on Jesus' yoke. See, Jesus offers freedom here. This is, this is about freedom from the religious burdens that the Pharisees put on the people. So Jesus is offering freedom, but what he's not offering is freedom from obedience to God. Hmm, yeah. In obedience to God, we find real freedom. And so Jesus calls us, as he's inviting us to come to him and find rest, he's inviting us to take his yoke. He's calling your neighbor to take his yoke. But it is a yoke. It is a yoke. It's an easy yoke. It's a nice yoke. It's a good yoke. And it's light compared with the burdens that your neighbors are carrying right now. I believe that through your invitation... For somebody to come and serve with you, to in some ways put their hand to the plow, to be yoked with you because you've taken on Jesus' yoke, I believe that you are offering an invitation for somebody to, to begin to understand what Jesus is offering them. The Pharisees' approach to obeying God was what? A bunch of religious rules, and that didn't work. That's 
not what we're about. That's not what Jesus was about. What was Jesus' way of obeying God? What's the thing that he emphasizes the most? And you can go back and look at Matthew chapter 11 and surrounding verses. Jesus offers a method or a model of obeying God which focuses on justice, grace, mercy. That's Jesus' way. That's Jesus' way. And when we invite our neighbor to serve, we're inviting them by the projects that we do, by our good deeds. We're inviting them to a demonstration of Jesus' justice and mercy working through us. Mm. We're inviting them to a demonstration of who Jesus is. What does he say in this great invitation? He says, learn from me. I'm gentle and humble. We're inviting people to learn about Jesus through seeing us serve in this way and inviting them to, hey, you're weary? Come. Come to Jesus. Take his yoke. You know, this invitation that Jesus made, it's not just to Christians. This was made before he died, and this is an invitation that is universal. This is an invitation that includes your neighbor. You are inviting your neighbor to a demonstration of the justice and mercy and the grace of Jesus, the goodness of God, and you're inviting them to get a little preview of God's call on their lives. And I believe it's going to change lives. It's going to change your life to be a part of this process. It's an invitation to all. And our prayer, our expectation, is that people will see the light of God in you on that day of service. They'll move closer to him, and they'll become more aware of the strong possibility that we know is truth, that God has a call on their lives, that God is calling them to himself. He's going to give them rest, but he's got a purpose. He's got a yoke for them that will be easy and light because it's made for them. Help them in that process. Be a part of this. If you have never submitted your life to Jesus Christ, man, you can do so in great confidence that he has a good plan, he loves you, and he wants you to be a part of his family. He wants a relationship with you. He's emphasizing not what you've done wrong. See, he died to take care of what you've done wrong. And now he's offering you salvation. He's offering you grace. He's offering you forgiveness. And we enter into that. We enter, to, enter into a whole new way of life. Are you weary? Are you burdened? Would you come to Jesus right now? Would you pray this prayer with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for my sins. I believe he died, he was raised from the dead, and he is Lord. Forgive me of my sins. Be the Lord of my life. Hey, if you prayed that prayer, welcome to the family of God. He has great things in store for you. Stay with us through this entire service, and somebody's going to come along in just a few minutes and share with you some very important next steps. We want to just walk with you and help you in God's plan for your life as best as we can. We know there's something good in store for you. So again, welcome to the family of God. God bless you. We'll see you next time. 
Thanks for listening to the Victory Church Podcast. If this message inspired you, feel free to share it with your friends, family, and social media. And make sure to subscribe to hear future messages from Victory Church. If you'd like to support the mission of Victory, please visit getvictory.net slash give. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day.